As we turn to God's Word, would you bow with me right now and pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your Holy Word, 66 books of the Bible that add up to all the truth that we need on a spiritual and a relational level to know you and to follow you this side of heaven. And so I pray, God, that as we continue on in our look at this awesome book, the New Testament book of Galatians, that, Lord, you might teach us some things we didn't know, at the very least cement even further in our hearts and our minds the things that we have become convinced of. Lord, more than anything, draw us closer to yourself right now that we, we pray through the right instruction of your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you will notice, and Cactus and Venue, you will notice as well, that I've entitled today's message, God's Logic. God's Logic. And that was done by, by absolute design, because one of the things that I love about God is that He is, by and large, logical. He is, by and large, logical. And when I say, by and large, logical, what I simply mean by that is that there are some times in the Bible where God seems to go against our logic or do or say things that don't seem to make sense to us. But what most theologians point out is that this is likely because we are finite, God is infinite, and that somehow to the mind of God, these things have to make sense. So when it comes to things like the Trinity, or when it comes to election and will, or when it comes to the problem of evil, we tend to end up in mystery when it comes to some of those things. But if it is true, as the Scriptures say, and it is, that His ways are higher than our ways, then these things must make sense to the mind of God. But you see, most times it really isn't this way. Most times God is presented in the Bible as thoroughly logical, even according to our own standards, and it's because of this that God is constantly seen in the Scriptures as reasoning with His people. And that's important for you to latch on to this morning. He reasons with us. So I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where God says to wayward and wandering Israel this. He says, come now, let us reason together. And then he goes on to reason with them about their sin and waywardness and says, wouldn't you like forgiveness instead? Wouldn't you like to come back into right relationship with me instead? I love that phrase God uses here. Let us reason together. Let's take a logical journey together and talk about what is right and what is good. You see, folks, this is how God functions in our lives much of the time. He wants to lay out His truth before us in logical and even common sense ways and then have us wrestle with it, wrestle with the cogency of it, the rationale, and even the implications for our lives. So maybe this is new to you this morning. Don't ever forget this about God. He is, by His very nature, logical. He invented what philosophers call the, the laws of logic, and He uses them all the time in the Bible to help us understand Himself and the world around us. And so if you can get this idea of God, then you can understand much of the flow of the New Testament book of Galatians, the book we're studying this year at Scottsdale Bible. Because for six entire chapters, what Galatians is heaven-bent on doing for us is laying out in a logical and progression-oriented fashion precisely how you and I can know God eternally, how we can attain salvation in this life and certainly even the next. And though there's a lot of information in the details of Galatians, essentially the main message of the book is this. 
and that is that you and I attain salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. If you can remember that, you've nailed at least the general bird's eye view of Galatians, that salvation comes through faith alone, as we'll see today, apart from good works or moral effort, and that faith and faith that has an object, Jesus Christ and Him alone. And what I'm going to show you this morning, hopefully by the time you walk out today in Cactus and Venue, by the time you guys end, is that this makes sense. That when you consider all the ways that God might have given us salvation, that the way that it comes to us through faith alone and Christ alone makes the most sense. So we're going to turn this morning to Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And if ever God was in prime reasoning mode, He is in this portion of Scripture. And essentially, there are four logical ideas that flow out of the section of Galatians we're going to look at today, four truisms about God and us that add up to a cogent and workable understanding of how you and I know Him for all of eternity. And so if you want to pull out your outlines, here's the first thing that this section of Galatians lays out before us, and it's simply this, and that is that if you try to earn eternal favor with God through your own moral effort, you place yourself in a no-win situation. For some of you, this is the only thing you need to hear today. You need to latch on to that. If you try to earn eternal favor with God, what we call salvation, through your own moral effort, through works of the law, you place yourself, by the very nature of that, in a no-win situation, essentially in a logical bind. And so look with me at how this section of Galatians begins. Look at verses 10 through 11a. This is interesting. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Now, there are two critical things that you need to dial into in these opening words of this section of Galatians to get the logic of what is happening here. And that is that you need to focus on those twice-repeated words each, all and then cursed. All and then cursed. You can dial into those. You can get what it's saying here. So first, focus on that twice-repeated word, all. And it says this, all who rely on works of the law must then abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And so the logic here is impeccable. If you come to God and say, I want to know you and I want to please you, and to do this, I'm going to obey what you have said in your book, then God responds by saying, good. But you have to obey all of it. Because you see, I'm holy and I have standards of holiness, and if you're going to know me, you're going to know me in my holiness, and my holiness is outlined in my law. And so, no pun intended, God is saying it's an all-or-nothing proposition. If you want to come to Him on the terms of your own moral effort in order to earn salvation with Him, He says you need to meet His standard. And His standard is outlined in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament law. All who rely on works of the law must abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So far, so good. But there's a catch, and it's a big catch, because God adds a second line of reasoning here when he says that if you try to engage in this double all by placing yourself on a salvation by works treadmill, then you place yourself 
in a no-win situation. For by saying that you will be able to meet God's pleasure by obeying the law, I don't know if you caught it or not, but it says you place yourself under a curse. I would submit to you that's a strong word even for biblical standards. Curse. And that word curse, interestingly, means the same thing back then as it means today. Look up here on the screen. The definition of a curse is, is an utterance designed to bring harm. And so the logic here is that if you try to earn God's favor through your own moral effort, God says you're hexed, you're harmed right from the get-go. And don't forget, before we see the logic of this, is that this particular curse comes from God. This is a quote here from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, in which God is the one giving the law to Moses and to the people of Israel. So this isn't some witch doctor pronouncing a curse on you or a friend who doesn't like you anymore. No, this is God who is saying you're cursed. And the implied reason that you're cursed if you try to earn God's favor through your own good works is that there's just no way you can humanly do it. It's impossible. Essentially, God is saying, if you honestly think that you can fully obey my law, which would indeed please me, he says, then you have either drastically overestimated your own moral ability or underestimated what it takes to please me. Either way, he says, you're cursed. And the logic, again, is impeccable. Because you and I are fallen and nowhere near perfect, we can't be good enough to earn his favor. So by placing ourselves on a works treadmill, we are doomed, we are cursed from the beginning. We've been declared losers in that race way before the gun has even got off, and we've left the starting blocks. You know, this is really an incredibly important issue that I think, though, some of you have heard before. I, even if you believe what we're talking about here today, please cement even more today how important this is for our spirituality. And the reason is, is because all of you have people in your life, friends, who really don't get this. They really believe that if they are just good enough people, that God is going to say, come into heaven. And we know this because when we ask people all the time, why do you think God would allow you to come into heaven, the number one answer we get, even from Christians who should know better, is, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I've lived a pretty good life. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not the equation. And if you make that part of the equation, you're setting yourself up for massive eternal failure when it comes to your walk with God. I want to give you a human example that might help you understand this a little bit and even have you help a little, have a little fun with this. On a Friday, I was up in Flagstaff for some meetings, and one of the elders of our church called me who lives up there in the summer. Isn't that nauseating? And he called me and said, uh, no, it's wonderful. And he said, do you want to play golf? My treat. And, and I said yes, even though I didn't have a lot of margin in my life this week. And I said yes, because this will be the second time this year that I will pick up a club and play golf. I don't play a lot of golf. In fact, one could call me a hack. I've been playing golf for 30 years, consistently four times a year for the last 30 years. And so I have a nice set of clubs. I got really nice outfits, and I look the part. It's just that I don't play very well. And so I told these guys before we even got to the first tee that I already have my sermon illustration down from Friday, even before we start the game, because I am that consistent at the game of golf. And sure enough, for those of you who know golf, I ended with a score that was above 100, 
which for those of you who don't play golf, is not good. The higher the score, not the better, especially if you get into triple digits. And that's my golf game. But I enjoyed it, and I'm glad to spend time with my friends. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a minute something that I guess would be somewhat possible. I turned 50 in January. I want you to imagine, and in January, I decided to quit the ministry. I'm not going to, but say I decided to. And I decided that I wanted to become a professional golfer. Given my background, stop laughing, given my background, <laughs> we know that it would take an immense amount of practice for me to become a good golfer. So let's say for the sake of argument that I apply Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. If you've read Mac Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he argues in the book that all the greats, whether it be Tiger Woods at golf or whether it be Bill Gates with computer or Warren Buffett with money, he says all the greats can be shown that they weren't just born great, though that might have contributed to it, more so, he says, that he can prove that every great individual on planet Earth has spent at least 10,000 hours honing their craft. So he points out that Tiger Woods has swung a golf club for more than 10,000 hours in his life. And that one of the reasons people get very good that they become outliers is because of this 10,000-hour rule. So let's say for the sake of argument, I quit the ministry in January, and I start to practice 10,000 hours of golf. I did the math. It would take me 10 hours a day, six days a week, I'd still honor the Sabbath, six days a week for three years to spend 10,000 hours at golf. And let's say for the sake of argument that after doing that, one could argue that I have now attained my physical best at golf, and I'd be a much better golfer. But here's my question for you, and you don't need to worry about offending me here. If I was to do that, attain my physical best at golf, what would be the chances of me beating Phil Mickelson in a game of golf? Anybody want to say, what would the chances be? Just about zero. I mean, to be fair, on my maybe best day at 10,000 hours of golf, I might shoot, say, a 76. And if I caught Phil on a bad day when he was absolutely falling apart and shot a 78, I could say, I beat Phil Mickelson. But then the very next day, we'd pick up the sticks again, and what would happen? He would probably crush me at golf. And so my physical best is certainly not going to be enough, no matter how you do it humanly, thanks a lot, to beat Phil Mickelson. So here's my question for you. If the chances of me applying my absolute physical best effort to beat Phil Mickelson at golf are slim to none, then what do you think your chances are of pleasing a holy God with your best moral efforts? I mean, you need to see it like that. I mean, honestly, we, we all admit each and every day that our best efforts, at the very best, are not going to be good enough to even beat another average human being around us. We all give in to that. Out of billions of people on the earth, we know there can only be one best, and we're probably not it. By the way, we need to tell our children that, but that's for another sermon. But the reality is, is that if that's true on a human level, if I could never, by applying my best, even become a better golfer than Phil Mickelson, then what makes me think I stand a chance by applying my best moral effort at pleasing an absolutely holy and pure God? You see, you need to see it that way. Because we're kidding ourselves when we walk around thinking, well, I guess God's going to let me into heaven because I'm a pretty good guy or I'm better than my neighbor, or I'm not Ted Bundy, or, or Mick Jagger, or Howard Stern, whoever somebody decadent around you might be. 
We think that because we're not them, that God's going to smile on us. But you don't understand, his standard is not Mick Jagger. His standard is not Howard Stern. His standard is not even Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Don't miss this. His standard is him and his law and what he designed us to live and to be. And none of us measure up. And in the most pointed terms that the Scriptures can give us, it says you're cursed if you even try. If you try to earn eternal favor with God through your moral effort, it's an adventure in missing the point. It's a fruitless endeavor that will never pay off, let alone secure eternal salvation. This is why only faith alone and Christ alone can get a person right with God. Now, once we've established this with this understanding, I want to take this thought even further because there has been pushback to this for thousands of years. And the pushback goes like this. People will say, well, isn't this just splitting hairs, Jamie? I mean, God is still asking and requiring something from us for salvation. He's requiring our faith. And so doesn't faith really become a nice substitute for works? In fact, at the end of the day, isn't faith itself a good work? I mean, think about that. that that's actually a legitimate question. I, I mean, faith, it might, we might say it's different from works, but it's still requiring something of us. And so at the end of the day, isn't faith just a nice substitute for good works? And I think that's a legitimate question. Here's the second logical truism that God throws out as we consider what it takes to know Him for all of eternity. And it's point two on your outline, and it's this. Faith is not a work because faith is trusting and resting in something provided for you. I would throw out before you that there is a huge difference between faith, which we'll define in a minute here, and a good work, which we'll further define in a minute here, and that faith is in trusting and resting in something outside of yourself. But look at Galatians 3 and how it continues in its discussion of salvation. I think you'll see what I mean. Look at verses 11b through 12. It says, For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So, so what is this saying here? We get the first part here because many of us have been around the spiritual block a bunch of times. Quoting Habakkuk 2 verse 4, it says that righteousness, being right with God, comes through faith. The implication not being works of the law from the previous verse. But, but notice then that it tells us very clearly that works of the law are not the same as faith. And quoting a third Old Testament passage in this section, this time Leviticus 18.5, it tells us why. When it says that the one who does them, i.e. good works based on the law, will live by them. So, so contrast this. It's saying the righteous shall live by faith, but if you try to have a works-based salvation, you're going to live by those. And the obvious implication here is that God is drawing a thick line between the two, saying you're either going to live by works or live by faith, and the implication is they are not the same thing. As one commentator says, they are diametrically opposed to each other. And it's at this point you and I got to ask why. What's Trump with that? What's the logic behind this? And here's what I believe the logic is. Look up here on the screen. Cactus, then you look up at your screen right now. And that is that I would submit to you that law or good works require doing, whereas you and I all know that faith requires trusting. And they are not the same thing. They are very different entities. And you and I experience this all the time, each moment of each day. And so tell me if this isn't true. When you and I are in obedient 
or work mode, and we get this way all the time, either at work or in our marriage or, or in relationships, whatever it is, when we're in obedience or work mode, we're almost always doing something, right? I mean, by the very nature of the definition of saying that I'm obeying or working, it involves action. It involves doing, and we all live that out each moment of each day. But conversely, when we are in a faith-oriented relational mode, it's almost always about trusting or resting in a provision that's not of you. So one is about self-generated effort, while the other is about resting or trusting in a provision outside of you. So, so, So maybe this will help. If Kim and I are traveling down the road in our car and we get lost, which all couples do, and she tells me to get out my map or nowadays my iPhone GPS and figure out where we are, I'm going to do something, right? I'm going to pull out my phone and I'm going to work and I'm going to do to try to find out where we need to go to solve the problem. But if conversely she looks at me and says, don't worry, Jamie, I got this one, I know where we need to go, trust me, have faith in me, then by the very nature of that, she's asking me not to do something. She's asking me not to pull out my phone, and if I do, it's going to be an insult to her because she's asked me to trust and have faith. And by the very nature of that, you and I both know that there's a difference between me doing something or me trusting in a provision outside of myself that requires that I don't do something. And any of us who are in good relationship with our spouse and our friends and have experienced this know that we confront this situation all the time, that there's times in life when it's about doing and there's times in life when it's about trusting. And what you need to know, folks, is that God says it's the same with Him, that He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one that can provide for our eternal salvation. And so he makes a distinction between works and faith, and he says one's about doing, one's about trusting, trusting in a provision outside of yourself. And so it's right at this point as we follow the logic of this passion, or passage that we ask the question, well, what is that provision? If we can't earn our salvation, if we have to trust in a provision outside of ourselves, what is that provision? And now we're bumping into the third logical truism that is laid out in this section of Galatians, and it's this, only faith in God's provision of Jesus can make you eternally right with God. There it is. Only faith in God's provision can make us eternally right with God, and that provision is Jesus. So look at verse 13. After laying out that a works-based approach to our salvation is a no-win proposition, And then after making a sharp distinction between faith and works, trusting and doing, it says this now in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, now interesting, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, you need to bear with me on this one, because I know I'm asking you guys to think about a lot today, but I warned you that God is about logic, and this is a very logical passage, and I've put a lot on your plate already, but this, this verse puts us into kind of a meaty predicament here, and, and try to follow what's going on here. It's using that word curse again, isn't it? 
but, but it's using it in a very different way here. Whereas before it was quoting a passage out of, out of Deuteronomy 27, now it's quoting a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 21 in which it says, cursed is everybody who is hanging on a tree. And it says that when Christ hung on a tree, he became a curse for us. Now what does that mean? But what most commentators point out is that Paul the Apostle, when he was penning these words, being inspired by God, was using a rabbinical exegetical tool from his day that good Jewish scholars used called equal category. Equal category. And it's a fascinating tool. What equal category simply asserts, give me the definition here, is that the idea that similar words in, di in different passages from the Old Testament must be connected in some way. So if you have a word like cursed used in Deuteronomy 27, and then you confront the same word cursed used in Deuteronomy 21, and then all of a sudden a New Testament writer uses both of those passages in one central idea, that's equal category. In some way, it's all tied together. The question being, what is that way? Now watch this. What people point out, and this is so cool, is that in the first way, you and I are cursed by trying to obey God's law and earn our salvation. We've already established that. But what God does is that he takes that same curse, and when Jesus hung on that tree, because it says in the Old Testament, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree because they're being punished with a capital punishment for a crime they did, God transfers the curse that you and I are under onto Jesus. He becomes a curse for us, and I love how one Bible expert says, he says he then neutralizes the curse. The two curses cancel each other out. And so though you and I are cursed by trying to obey the law ourselves, Jesus comes along and says, I think I'll bear that curse for you, equal category. And he neutralizes any curse that we could ever be under. And this is why it says in verse 13 here that he has redeemed us. That is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Some of you know this, that word redeemed literally means to be ransomed, to be bought back. What is Jesus buying us back from? Sin, an eternity without God, our own flesh, our own pathetic, miserable choices that we make in life. He redeems us from all of that. How? By taking the curse upon himself and then asking us to trust him. And so maybe now you can see why it's no use trying to earn our salvation through moral efforts. Because if you do that, it just places you deeper within the curse, the same curse that Christ neutralized and said, now trust me, it's done for you. And folks, the reason that this is so important for you and I, not just for our own salvation, but again, this answers a question that an onlooking world asks you and I all the time, and it's the question that we get about why Jesus I mean, why do Christians say Jesus is the only way? Isn't that kind of exclusive? Isn't that kind of intolerant? I, I mean, why, aren't they kind of arrogant that Christians say that? I mean, you got Buddhism, you got Islam, you got Judaism, you got Hinduism. Those are just the major religions. You got Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Swedenborgism, Taoism. I mean, you got all these major and minor world religions, and all of a sudden Christians come along and say, Jesus is the only way. I, I mean, how arrogant can they be? I don't know about you guys, but before I became a Christian, that's how I thought. I remember growing up and, and dabbling in some world religions and stuff like that and mysticism, and then I'd meet some evangelical Christian and he'd say, you've got to accept Jesus. He's the only way. I go, well, that's kind of arrogant to say, leave. Get out of my presence. I mean, I didn't want anything to do with that. 
And so how do we answer that? I mean, what do we say? We're seeing it right here, folks. God does not say Jesus is the only way because he's trying to be sectarian or intolerant or exclusive. Not at all. He says, very logically and cogently, it's because of my grand and wonderful plan in which I decided to not make you have to work for it because I know you couldn't, and so I chose to provide Jesus instead. Now, don't miss this. The only one who can adequately atone or take the curse for our sin. And you say, why the only one? Well, that's easy, because he's God. God is the one who came in the man of Jesus, and atone for our sins. And and again, this is all logical. all fits together. If Jesus wasn't God, then the question I would have for you is, who is he to die for my sins? Amen? It's true. I remember talking years ago to one of my friends who got involved in an offshoot of Christianity that denied the Trinity. They didn't believe Jesus was God. They believed he was God-like, but not really God. But they did believe that he died on a cross for our sins, because we all need salvation. And I remember saying to my friend, as a gal, I said, well, let me just ask you one logical question. If Jesus isn't God, then who is he to die for your sin? She goes, well, he's kind of a really good man, a godly man. He was God's son. And I said, well, well, could Nelson Mandela have died for your sin? Could Gandhi have died for your sin? Could Buddha have died for your sin? Because none of them claim to have died for your sin. Why would Jesus claim that? And the answer is clear, because he's the only one that could adequately do it. He was God come to solve a problem that you and I have with God. And that makes sense. I I mean, if I got a problem with Dale, he's one of our security guys here in the front row, I got a problem with Dale, I don't go, some people do this, but I don't go to his wife to try to solve that problem. That's kind of wrong. No, I go to Dale, and Dale and I got to solve that problem. And and if God has a problem with you, you know what God says? I'm going to come to you and deal with that problem. And he comes to you in the form of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who became your substitute, your curse, so that you might come to God. And that's why he is the only way. And 30 years ago, when somebody explained this to me, even though this was a big stumbling block to me, I understood that because of what God has done uniquely in Jesus Christ, that no other religious leader has ever claimed, this is why I can get out from under the treadmill of works and receive grace from Jesus and only from him. Years ago, Bill Hybels at the famous Willow Creek Community Church taught it this way, and I always thought this was a neat way of seeing it. He said that when you look closely, the major world religions tend to spell salvation this way, D-O. It's all about what you do. If, If you're in Islam, you have to pray five times a day in a certain way, and you have to live up to a pretty strong moral code. If you're Jewish, you need to follow the law and the Torah as best you can and live up to a very strong moral code. Hinduism has its own moral code. Every major world religion is spelled essentially D-O. It's about what you do. Fascinating. Even the word religious means that which you do consistently. So if I say I golf religiously, which we establish I don't, but if I said I golf religiously, you guys would take that to mean that I golf a lot and that I golf consistently. So religion... By its very nature, spelled D-O. What Hybels asserted is that Christianity is not spelled that way. That Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Because Christianity, Jesus, is all about what has been done for you. And much less about what you do. Because God knows that if you try to do, you're under a curse. And you can't do enough. Is that freeing for you? It is for me. And so track where we have come from. 
If you insist on trying to prove your worthiness to God through your own self-generated moral efforts, you're on an adventure and missing the point. You can't be good enough any more than I could be a good enough golfer to beat a pro. Salvation only comes through faith, which is not a work. Faith is trusting in a provision outside of yourself, and that provision has a name, and his name is Jesus, the only one who can redeem us and the only one worth placing our trust in. This is God's logic, and it makes sense. And this is how you and I come to know God, faith alone in Christ alone. And you would think at this point in God's logic lesson that he would be done because it seems kind of neat and wrapped up, but he's not done yet. There's one final spiritual truism that Galatians lays out here and one that, quite frankly, ties it all together. So you're going to want to dial into this. And it's our fourth and final point this morning, and it's this, that only faith can unleash the spirit of blessing and power in your life. And what's that about? I want you to look one last time at Galatians 3. This time look at verse 14 and how it wraps up this section. It says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, we might receive the promised spirit, now don't miss this, through faith. Now, now why is this important? Next week when you guys come back, not if you come back. Next week, when you come back, we're going to continue our discussion of Galatians, and we're going to flesh out more of this promise given to Abraham, because Paul's going to go on to talk about that. And you're going to see it's so cool that God has had this plan of salvation that we're looking at here for thousands of years. In fact, a good Reformed person would understand that he had this plan of salvation way before the beginning of time. God knew what he was going to do for us. And so he's been, it's been an operation ever since the Bible began. We're going to look at that next week. But notice that it says here that we receive the promised spirit through faith. That's an interesting phrase to end with. And what many commentators wrestle with is why does Paul, why does God include the Holy Spirit here? I mean, in many discussions in Romans, when it's talking about justification by faith alone, the Spirit is brought in, but not so much later. Why does he see fit to bring the Spirit in here right now? And the answer is really cool. And that is that what he's trying to say is that your journey now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is going to continue empowered by the Spirit through the same faith that saves you. And I'm telling you, a lot of Christians don't get this. If I've heard once, I've heard a thousand times, Christians say to me, well, I'm saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And then their implication is, I better get working. I better get obedient. I better get with the program. I better try really hard now that God has saved me because I owe him because he has saved me and I better live a life set apart to him and do my very best to please him. And, and, and kind of like... I don't quote Dr. Phil very often, but, but I think of Dr. Phil. How's that working for you? I mean, honestly, it, it, many Christians, you know, I know it's functioning this way. They say, God has saved me through faith alone and Christ alone, but I better muster up all the effort I can now to live a life pleasing to him. And all I know is that after 30 years, when I try that, I fail miserably. And I'm a very disciplined guy. I got a lot of self-strength in me, but not enough, even as a Christian, to please God on my own moral effort, even after I'm saved. 
No, what Paul is saying here, what God is affirming here, is the only way you can continue to please God now as a follower of Him is to have that same faith that saves you now place each moment of each day in Jesus Christ. And watch this. God says when you do that, I'll unleash my spirit of power and love and grace and knowledge in your life so that now I'm doing it in and through you. I'm empowering you. I'm living my life, Galatians 2.20, in and through you. We call it the exchanged life. And it's all about faith. And so this is exactly what Paul was getting at in Galatians 3.3. Daryl preached on this while I was gone, that having begun in the Spirit, faith alone and Christ alone, are you now trying to attain your goal through human effort? The answer is, how crazy would that be? And so here's why this is important. Many of you here today are saved. Cactus venue, many of you are Christians already. But you know and I know you're having a lot of trouble changing. You're having a lot of trouble getting over certain sins. You're having a lot of trouble being more loving, more truthful, more faithful, more consistent, more joyful, more peaceful, more content. If truth be known, you're struggling deeply at that level. And so you wake up every day, and as a good Christian, you read the daily bread, and you have a little devotional, and you try really hard. And then at night, what are you doing? You're confessing big time all those things you screwed up on all day long. And the reality is, is that God comes along and says, I don't think you read verse 14 yet. I don't think you understand that now as one who has come to me on the terms of faith alone, you need to continue on those terms. And get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes even off your self-discipline. And get your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 4, the only one who can help you and give you grace in your time of need. Do you see that? We began with faith, and we continue in faith. As the great hymn, the great hymn writer said, it is grace that has saved me, and it is grace that leads me home. That's how the Christian life works. And so here's what I want to do as we wrap up here today. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, I want to pray with you. I actually love to pray with you guys. I, I wish many, many times that I would shut up more and that we'd have more times of prayer together. Because prayer is how you and I do business with God. Prayer is where commitments are made. Prayer is where heart attitudes are cemented. And so I want to pray with you here for a few minutes. And Cactus and Venue, I want to pray with you as well. We're going to pray together. And I'm going to basically pray for two groups of you. The first group is I'm going to pray for those of you who in the first part of this message here today of God's logic are ready to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time as Lord and as Savior, as the only one who can get you into heaven, give you eternal life, eternal salvation. You've been, you've been seeking Him for a while. You might even thought you were a Christian, but you realize today it's been on the treadmill of works and that that's not going to cut it. And you're ready today to freely receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. I'm going to pray with you to do that here in just a minute. But there's another group of you here today that certainly have already cemented your faith in Christ and you've come to Him clearly, faith alone and Christ alone, but you've taken your eye off the ball. You realize how easy it is to fall back into self-generated moral effort to now live the Christian life. It's not working well for you. And you're ready today to refocus your sights through faith once again on Jesus for the unleashing of the Spirit in your life. I'm going to pray with you to do that. And so let's all bow together, cactus and venue, let's all bow together, and let's enter into a time of holy prayer before God. Father God, I thank you that from eternity past, you've had each one of us in mind, 
that you love us, that you made us in your image, that you care for us, and that, Lord, as your scriptures say, you long for all to come to repentance and to find you. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's some of us here today that as we followed your logic, as we followed what your word lays out, our hearts are stirred and we long to have the kind of eternal relationship with you that's secure and assured because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And so Lord, if there's some here today and at Cactus and Venue that are ready to receive your son Jesus for the first time, then right where they sit, they pray along with me this prayer. Thank you, God, that you love me. Thank you that you made me. Thank you that you revealed to me that I am a sinner who falls so very short of you and that even on my best day, my works cannot atone for that. And so I realize that Jesus Christ is my Savior, my Lord, and I accept him and only him as the one who can bring me to you. God, I pray that if anybody would pray that prayer here today, that you would fill them with your spirit immediately with an initial burst of assurance and joy that they are yours, that you are theirs, and that nothing now, nothing, can ever take that away or change that. And may they mark today, Lord, as a day that they came to you. Lord, there's others of us us here today that uh, have been followers of you for maybe a short time or even a very long time. And Lord, we realize how easy it is to wander and stray. And Lord, how easy it is in our world of self-atonement, in our world of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to try to live the Christian life that way. And we forget that it began with faith and that faith needs to continue on. And so, Lord, even today, Lord, we look to you once again and we say, oh, God, my life is yours. I submit to you. And I realize that it's only through your spirit and through continual faith, abiding faith in Jesus, that I can change and become the person you want me to be. And so, Lord, once again, we place our sights on you. And so, Lord, may this be the kind of week where we keep connected with you, the vine, keep connected with the vine through faith. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that each of us, Lord, would not allow the words that we looked at today to fall on deaf ears, but that, Lord, we would think about these things and, Lord, apply them to our lives, mostly by drawing close to you. Thank you, Lord, that there's not one person here, not one in venue or cactus that's beyond your reach and beyond your grace. We're comforted by that. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.